Tired of having mature conversations with people who disagree with you? Now you can avoid agitating situations and touchy subjects with Volatile. For only $99.99 and all of your empathy, this versatile tile can be yours today. Just call 1-833-3-VOLATILE to place your order. Call now and we'll throw in Volatile to go, a mini version of this incredible product that will do exactly what Volatile does, only you can take it with you wherever you go. Don't wait. Call 1-833-3-VOLATILE today. Hey, good morning. It's welcome on a beautiful spring day. I was just thinking for those watching in the Southern Hemisphere, beautiful fall day. But we're just so thankful that you're here. Let me just say a word about next week. We're celebrating Mother's Day, which is a huge day at New Spring. We have the amazing Nita Renfro with us uh, next week, author, comedian, and you're going to enjoy her. And then I'll be bringing a talk actually from the Volatile series. It has nothing to do with Mother's Day. It just happens to fall on the same day. Uh, but w- I, I just want to thank you for being here today and, and talk for a moment about our series. It is called Volatile. And you and I know that our world is getting more volatile all the time. Just so that we'll have a dictionary definition for volatile and maybe have a point of reference to begin with, the dictionary says that the word volatile means liable to change rapidly and unpredictably, especially for the worse. And I think instantly when we hear that and we look at our culture, we feel that. And then beyond that, I think those of us who are in this culture, we have this concern about what's going to happen next. Uh, This is a terrible old joke. One of the good things about political correctness is we don't say things like this anymore. But I remember when I was young, there was a saying going around that said something like this. I don't want to die in my sleep like my grandpa, or I want to die in my sleep like my grandpa. I don't want to die yelling and screaming like the passengers in the car with him. Thankfully, (laughs) we don't say stuff like that anymore. But I do kind of feel that sense of yelling and screaming in a driverless car because things are getting more volatile all the time. Now, we're having a little fun with the title of the series as a flooring product. And the reason why I came up with that, well, first of all, I know the word is pronounced volatile, but I think about the surfaces in my home as you think about those in your house. For instance, you have ceiling surfaces but you rarely ever touch it. In fact, if you wanted to live your life in your house without touching the ceiling, I think it would be pretty easy to do that. You also have wall surfaces. It'd be a little more difficult to live your life without touching the walls, but if you had a phobia against it, you could sort of live your life without touching the walls. But one thing you couldn't do is you couldn't live in your house without touching the floors. Floor surface is where you live, whether it's carpet or wood or tile or concrete. You live on the floor surface, and that's the reason why we've chosen this title for this series. You really can't avoid the volatile nature of our culture. I wish I had good news for us today, but I don't think the genie's going to go back in the bottle. So what these four talks are about, and they are talks. I'm not really sure you could call these sermons. These are workshops that we're going to have together to help us function in a difficult world. But that's what we want to look at. We want to look at how do we walk on this surface? How do we function in a world that gets more volatile every day? How do we keep from getting caught up in the volatility? Because what I discover as I'm part of this culture, if I'm not careful, I'll get caught up in the same volatile feelings or volatile expressions of our times. And then where do we find the opposite of volatility? Our tagline for the series is keeping stable in an out-of-control world. The opposite of volatility is stability peace, 
might be a better term for it. How do we find peace in this culture that's out of control? And New Spring is a church of all ages, but we tend to be fairly young, and we have a lot of kids here. And I think for all of us who are parents or grandparents, we're asking the question, how do we raise our kids in a world that's more volatile? Remember, volatile means liable to change rapidly and unpredictably, usually for the worse. How do we raise our kids in that kind of climate? How do we, how do we influence our grandkids. So, as I said a moment ago, every one of these messages is going to be a workshop. It's going to be practical. Last weekend, Jonathan brought a talk that kind of introduced the concept of our volatile times in a message called Introducing New Volatile. Next week, our title is When Your Neighbors Get Volatile. It has to do with dealing with volatile people. How do, we, how do we cope with volatile people? And it's a tremendous, tremendous message from God's Word. I can't wait to bring it. And then last week, the last week of the series is how to take up or remove volatile. But today I want to talk about something that I think has every smart person concerned. And I, I'll just tell you before I bring this talk today, I've already brought it twice yesterday, but even before I brought it the first time, I had a sense that this is going to be one of the most important talks in my lifetime, in my career. Every smart person is concerned about the fact that volatile has people talking. Our speech today, our interaction with, with each other um, in, in all kinds of ways, through entertainment, through media, through social media, our talk today is getting more volatile all the time. And the, the formula kind of goes like this, and I think you're aware of this, you don't need me to teach on it very long, but the louder the rant, the bigger the audience. The more negative, the more attention. The more volatile, the more buzz. And I, I feel like our culture is just kind of rolling with that, saying, yeah, that's the way things are. But smart people, and you're smart because you're here today, those of you watching online, you're smart people. Smart people are looking at this and saying, it isn't going to end well. Because we understand that when communication is volatile, there's no way of keeping that genie in the bottle, and it tends to go from communication to action, and we're already seeing this. I mean, every day when you open your news feed, we're finding more and more acts of violence, oftentimes perpetrated against complete strangers, because what used to be volatile communication is now becoming volatile action. There is a cultural issue that we need to pay attention to. Rabbi Joseph Telushkin has written a book called Words That Hurt, Words That Heal. And it's a great book, but beyond that, he's doing a lot of speaking or has done a lot of speaking. And he speaks in universities especially. And he'll oftentimes begin his talk by asking the question, how many of you are concerned that you may be addicted to negativity? And he said, almost no one raises his or her hands. But then he makes a point. He said, if you can't go 24 hours without taking a drink of alcohol, you're an alcoholic. You're addicted to alcohol. He said, if you can't go 24 hours without smoking a cigarette, you're addicted to nicotine. And he said, by the same token, if you can't go 24 hours without being negative, he said, you need to ask yourself the question, is it possible that I've become addicted to negativity? Smart people are asking themselves as they look at this culture that grows more volatile, especially in regard to communication, what's going to happen next? And there's a sense this isn't going to end well. 
Well, today, my goal in this workshop is to give you practical help from the Bible, and I really do believe I have some help for us. In fact, I know I do because it comes from the Bible and not from me. But before we get into that practical help, we need to understand very clearly a couple of things that give us context for our times. And I hate to say this to start out with, but the first thing is it's worse than we think it is. I'm talking to someone who has my personality out there, and you're a little bit skeptical. And you say, hey, Mark, a few minutes ago, you said this is one of the biggest talks I'll ever bring, but you're talking about talk, and talk's not that serious. You know, sticks and stones may break my bones, and words will never hurt me. I can't imagine how you would say, giving thousands of messages in your lifetime, that a a sermon about talk is one of the most important. Let me show you why it is. As I said, the problem is bigger than we think it is. Jesus himself coached us up on this. In the Gospel of Matthew chapter 12 and the 34th verse, he said, whatever is in your heart determines what you say. So it's not enough to say volatile communication is not a big problem because it's just talk. We must understand that volatile speech, volatile posting, volatile writing comes from someplace. Now, the heart in the Bible is typically the mind, the emotions, and the will, but predominantly, it's the mind. So consequently, the reason why we have volatile talk today is because, and this is why I say it's worse than we realize, it's because minds are volatile. What's going on inside of people is volatile, and Jesus said, whatever is in your heart determines what you say. I think we feel that when we look especially at comment threads. I don't know if you guys ever do that or not, but it's kind of hard to avoid, right? Because someone does a post or someone writes an article, and the next thing you know, people are commenting on it. Have you ever noticed how that there can be a particularly innocuous comment or innocuous story, and it isn't long before in the comment thread somebody's going nuclear, going ballistic? I mean, we just had the NFL draft the other day, and I was just reading some of the comments about particular players picked in the draft. And, you know, it's one thing, well, I like this player, I don't like this player. But the next thing you know, I mean, there are people wanting to do violence against the team headquarters for picking the person. There's something about that that says, I don't really know that they care that much about that. There's something else going on inside. Perhaps the most bizarre of this, I I don't like to read recipes on my own, but Mary Alice does. And I love Mary Alice. So every once in a while, We'll just check out recipes. And, you know, someone's just posting a recipe. And the next thing you know, in the comment thread, someone is saying nobody should eat that food. And, I mean, it's almost terroristic in the way they're talking. And I think we understand no one probably cares that much about a recipe, but something's going on wrong inside. And it's coming out in the way people talk. So you you get Jesus' point. He's saying our issue today is worse than we think it is. And now here's a huge one. There's no way to look at the subject of the way people talk today without understanding the prophetic context. We're going to be in a prophetic series in the month, in months of June, July, and August. It's a series called Clash of Dynasties to the Daniel Project, and or the Daniel Chronicles. And we're going to be talking about things that are going to happen, be happening in the last days. But let me just borrow from that series right now because there's no way we can understand why talk today is so crazy without understanding where we are prophetically. Let me show you what I mean. This is from 2 Timothy chapter 3, and I want to read from the Phillips translation. Paul is writing Timothy. Paul is coming to the end of his life, and he's talking to his successor, Timothy. He said, you must realize in the last days the times will be full of danger. You could really read that volatile. Now... 
Dr. Kenneth Wiest, who's probably the greatest Greek scholar of our time, says that this particular Greek construction in the language indicates that what Paul is talking about is stuff that's going to happen right before the return of Jesus. And we know we are in the last days. We caught that last year in Clash of Dynasties 1. Jesus said, well, there are a lot of reasons why we know we're in the last days, but specifically because of what's happened with Israel, 1948, uh, 1957, 1967, 1973, uh, 2017. Because of what's happened with Israel, we know we're here in the last days. It's, it's unquestioned that we're in the last days. So the reason I make that point is what Paul is writing Timothy about has a lot more to do with our times than Timothy's times. Let's read. Men will become utterly self-centered, greedy for money, full of big words. They will be proud and contemptuous without any regard for what their parents taught them. They will be utterly lacking in gratitude, purity, and normal human affections. They will be men of unscrupulous speech and have no control of themselves. They will be passionate and unprincipled, treacherous, self-willed, and conceited, loving all the time what gives them pleasure instead of loving God. They will maintain a facade of religion, but their conduct will deny its validity. Now, I want to pull some expressions out of that text that we just read that will help us focus on our times and understand them within a prophetic context. First of all, the Bible says they will be proud and contemptuous. I don't need to talk about pride. Contemptuous is really important. It's really salient to our discussion today. The word contempt means the feeling that a person is beneath consideration, worthless, and deserving scorn. Good morning, social media. How are you? Here's the deal. I'm not political here at New Spring. I have my own personal viewpoints. Now, if the politicians get over into a subject that talks about the Word of God, they're in my territory now. But in regard to politics, I'm not really that political. Now, here's the thing. I believe you'd have to agree whether you're the most rock-ribbed conservative or you're uh, dyed-in-the-wool progressive. I think anyone, wherever they fall in the political spectrum would have to look at our times today and recognize that the contempt that's out there. Let me read that one more time. Contempt is the feeling that a person is beneath consideration, worthless, and deserving scorn. Smart people have to look at this and say, this is not a good thing. Whatever you feel about someone who disagrees, where is that feeling of understanding? Where is that feeling of recognizing that someone may have a different viewpoint that I have, but it doesn't mean that person can be treated with scorn and contempt? But the Bible says that's what's going to happen in the last days. Secondly, there's no regard for what their parents taught them. The first time I look at that, I want to say a lot of people, their parents didn't teach them anything. But for many of us, our parents did teach us things. And if it wasn't our parents, maybe our grandparents taught us things. But today, more than ever, there is a sense that you don't have to listen to what people from prior generations have said, because after all, our technological advances have made us more sophisticated than anyone else of all time. And of course, there's no regard for what they've been taught in the past. Uh, the third thing that I read about, there's no gratitude, purity, or normal human affection. Slow down for just a moment. This particular word appears several times in the Bible in regard to the last days. Now, in English, it's without human affection. But the Greek word is astorge, S-T-O-R-G-E is the root word. It's a form of love, but not a high form of love. The highest form of love in the New Testament Greek is agape. That is the love that God has for us, we have for him, we have for each other. And then there's the second level of love that is phileo or friendship. 
Storge is like the third level of love. Let me tell you what storge is. Storge is what makes you let someone in in traffic. You don't know the person. You, you may never see them again, but you know how difficult it is to merge into traffic, especially during high traffic times, and you pull your automobile back and you let the person get into traffic. That is storge. It is just natural human affection. It is what makes you pet your dog. It is what makes your dog smile and wag its tail at you when your dog sees you. It's just normal affection. Storge. But several times in the New Testament, the Bible tells us in the last days, people will be ah. Storge, as a negative prefix, without that natural human feeling. And definitely we see that today, and it certainly comes out in communication. And then unscrupulous speech. We read that, didn't we? Unscrupulous means unrestrained by fairness. Ooh. Could we just say that? Stop for a moment there. Unrestrained by fairness. You know, whenever we communicate, there needs to be a sense of understanding the other person. Understanding the other person's point of view, understanding that person's life situation, of taking into account what they may have seen that looks differently than what we've seen. It doesn't mean that we don't believe we're right. It just means that our speech is governed by a general sense of fairness. But you and I know that that's largely gone today. Here's my favorite, passionate and unprincipled. I think, I think this may be the best description of all. Unprincipled, but passionate about it. Ready to go to the wall, ready to go to the mat, you know, ready to do whatever it takes to get our point of view, but there's no principle guiding it. It's like having an automobile with 500 horsepower and no steering wheel. And that is the times. And then I put a star beside this one as well. The Bible says they will have a facade of religion, but their conduct will deny its validity. I really believe this is a quintessential definition for political correctness. It's not a real faith. It's a facade of faith. But the, the Bible makes the point that people won't even be able to live up to it because it is a facade. I know that sounds circular, but I think you see that with political correctness. It's strange, isn't it, with political correctness that people seem to have to learn a language, but it doesn't change their hearts. I think that's one of the problems that we're experiencing culturally in America today. People can learn the language, but they can be as much a racist in their hearts as they ever have been. They can learn the language, but they're just as hateful in the heart as they ever have been. And, and let me just tell you how it manifests itself down the road. We're always asking, is that an adequate apology? I think we're playing games with ourselves because we know someone is apologizing for something that he said that he really felt in the first place, but he had to give an apology to be politically correct. The heart isn't changed. As the Bible says, it's a facade of religion. It isn't real, and they don't live up to it. Now, Scripture tells us that's what's going to happen in the last days, and you can prove that like a mathematic equation. You can prove it forward or backward. You can say, we know we're in the last times because these things are happening, or you can say, in the last times, what's going to happen, the things the Bible just taught us. But there's no getting around the fact that communication today has to be viewed in the context of prophetic realities. Now, we're going to pick up 2 Timothy chapter 3, because Paul is talking to our times. We've already, we've already solidified that. So at the end of this chapter, he's going to tell us how to go forward in this time. But before we do that, I'd like to just go back through the Bible to look at some practical things that the Bible teaches us about communication. Because I think, in large part, many times we've lost the truths of Scripture 
in regard to communication. So these, you can either take these down as notes. I think these will also be on our Bible app here at New Spring. But I want to give you like six or seven things real quickly from the Bible that we need to focus on before we post, before we speak, before we write. Here we go. This is the easy one, first of all. Words are powerful. They are. Proverbs 18, verse 21 says, death and life are in the power of the tongue. So it does matter what we say. So let's jump from that to proving it real quickly with the second one. And and I'm going to tell you something. If you were to ask me, Mark, what verse in the Bible scares you the most? It's the one I'm about to read. I, I don't get scared about verses about hell because I know that Jesus died for my sins and God has saved me. I don't really get scared that much when the Bible talks about the difficult days in the end times. But this verse scares me. I want you to read it with me. In Matthew 12, 36, Jesus said, You must give an account on judgment day for every idle word you speak. The words you say will either acquit or condemn you. Let me show you how this works. The Bible is saying the way I communicate to and about other people, it reveals a standard. For instance, if I'm, if I'm chewing out Mary Alice for something she did or said, then I have communicated a standard of what I think is appropriate and inappropriate. I may be having a bad day, but I may just say something unkind or cutting to her, and God is like, okay. Well, now, Mark seems to feel that that's very important. Let's put this down, and when he stands before me, we'll we'll check him out by what he just said to Mary Alice and see if he lives that way. Or when we're critical of someone on social media and we jump in on a thread and we're ragging somebody and giving them a hard time because of what they did, maybe wrong, God is like, oh, okay, well, this is very important to her because she posted on social media that she finds this reprehensible. So if she finds it reprehensible, then we're going to check her life out and make sure that she's good with this. Did you notice how quiet it got in here? I don't know what it's like in North Auditorium, but in the South, it just got very, very quiet. I think we know what this means. We oftentimes execute a standard upon others that we don't want to be used on ourselves. And yet Jesus said, when we stand before God, you know what's going to be used to judge us? Our standard. How we felt about other people. What we said was bad that other people did. God is like, okay, well, this is really, really important to him. How many of us just decided in the last 10 seconds that we're going to start saying a lot more kind, gracious things because we want God to say, oh, did you hear how Mark was talking to Mary Alice? Grace must be very important to him. We'll put that down here. I'll just tell you, for a generation that finds communication really cheap, we might want to tap into how God feels about that because we will see our words again. That takes me to number three. There's no law that says I have to comment on everything fair. I mean, I don't have to comment on every post. I don't have to comment on every story. I mean, now that I know words are important and I'm going to see them again, I I might not want to comment on everything. And the Bible says this, a truly wise person uses few words. Even fools are thought wise when they keep silent with their mouth shut. They seem intelligent. (laughs) And then Proverbs 13, three, that says those who control their tongue will have a long life And can I get a witness on this? Opening your mouth can ruin everything. Let me go to a sensitive place, but it needs to be talked about. Number four, dirty, profane talk is just as dirty as it ever was. 
I know that I am revealing my age here, but there used to be a time when men would not use profane language around a lady or a child. Uh, maybe that was my grandparents' day and my dad's day, but I remember a time, and I'm not saying this is right, but I remember a time when a man, if he used profane language in a restaurant where the other man's wife could hear it, it could, it could start something. And especially if a man used profane language around someone's child. But today, ladies are using that language and children are using that language. And let's go a sensitive step further. This is very common among those of us who claim to follow Jesus. Now, my point tonight or this morning is that dirty talk is as dirty as it ever was. The reason why I frame it in that language, I want us to understand God has not changed his mind. Culturally, there's been a shift in regard to what's acceptable, but just because there's a shift in a culture that's on its way to hell and is on its way to the tribulation, just because there's a shift in a culture doesn't mean that God has changed his mind. In fact, in scriptures in chapter five of, uh, chapter 5 of Ephesians, the fourth verse, right after God has said there should never be a hint of sexual promiscuity, the Bible says, nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. Well, today you and I understand, as I said, there's been a cultural shift, and largely it's been created by entertainment. As entertainment grew more coarse, especially in the 60s and 70s, suddenly there was this proliferation of profanity and obscene language uh, in, in, in entertainment. Today, it's, it's on network television. And so it's bled into the groundwater of our culture. And today, you have, like I said, men, women, and children, you know, throwing out the F-bomb all the time. Let me just stop for a few moments and move aside from the scriptural aspect of this, and we'll get right back to it. Have you ever considered the psychology of profanity? I mean, people use these words all the time. Does anyone ever consider the psychology behind why we do such things? Because after all, it doesn't add clarity. I mean, the, the F-bomb, for instance, it's, it's a corruption or a derivative of the word fornication. And, and often today, it's turned into an adjective or an adverb. How many times do you hear conversation in a movie or conversation with someone else, and they're throwing the F-bomb around, and it isn't even coherent? It doesn't even make coherent sense. Why do people, why do people insert a word in a statement that doesn't make it any clearer? Well, here's the psychology there is the belief or feeling that profanity adds power to a statement. In my childhood, it was the, it was the adjective made with two words, God and the word damn. And so that was frequently an adjective that was used. And, and in those days, what was happening is someone was using those words in an attempt to juice up their statement to make it more powerful, to make it more emphatic. And today, our language is more scatological. There's more usage of terms that has to do with human bodily functions. Well, let me just tell you why there's a problem with that. 
Jesus said, when he talked about swearing, and this is in Matthew 5, he said, do not swear. Simply let your yes be yes and your no be no. Anything beyond that comes from the evil one. Now, if people use profanity because they want to goose up the power of their statement, Jesus is saying, you don't need to do that. Let your personal integrity be what empowers your statement. If your yes means yes, you don't need an F-bomb. If your no means no, then you don't have to throw profanity in. Now, we've worked away, we've worked to an intellectual construct that we're about to unveil right now. Whenever a person uses profanity, it is an implicit, let's say it is an explicit admission of obvious weakness. If you have to have an F-bomb to goose up your statement, then your yes doesn't mean yes, and your no doesn't mean no. And long ago, you lost your integrity in that matter, and now you have to use a crutch. Now, I'm concerned about this in a lot of areas, but I'm most concerned about it in the area of parenting. Well, I'm concerned about it with husbands and wives, too. But I'm really concerned about it with parenting. Because there are parents who claim to be Christians, and may well be, who are dropping F-bombs on their kids. And the reason you're doing it, let's just be real straight about this. The reason you're doing it, you have lost your integrity. You have lost your credibility. Your yes doesn't mean yes. A long time ago, your yes didn't mean yes anymore. And your no didn't mean no anymore. And now you got anger talking to anger, and it's out of control. If you are a Jesus follower, now if you don't believe in God and you're not a follower of Jesus, I'm not talking to you right now. But if you claim to be a Jesus follower, in the name of Jesus, stop it. Now someone will say, Mark, it's kind of late for that because it's kind of become a culture in our house. I want to offer you what I believe is a great suggestion. You know what I've learned about kids through the years is kids can deal pretty well with honesty. Kids can deal pretty well with transparency. And so mom and dad, if, and it could be that, forgive me for breaking a sentence, I just want to bring something out. It could be that you were raised with that kind of language. And, and it was in the groundwater of your vocabulary before you started even remembering, remembering things. But, but here's what you can do. Sit down with your kids and say, you know, I realize that my yes doesn't mean yes and my no doesn't mean no. And mom and dad have used some language that's wrong. It's sin against God. And we're confessing that to each other. We're confessing it to God and we're confessing it to you. And from now on, this isn't going to be part of our family. You know what you could do? You could take something that's really painful and turn it into a teaching moment, couldn't you? So I'm not saying these things to judge us, although we do need to face this so squarely. But if you claim to be a follower of Jesus Christ, then let's follow him. And one of the things that Jesus said is you don't need to swear. Just let your yes mean yes. Let your no mean no. Let your personal integrity power your statements. Number five, gossip is verbal terrorism. In Proverbs chapter 11, verse 11, the Bible says, Upright citizens are good for a city and make it prosper, but the talk of the wicked tears it apart. Sometimes we feel... We feel, we feel okay with sharing what we shouldn't share because, after all, it's just the truth. But the Bible doesn't give us that as a measuring point. The measuring point Scripture uses is, does it tear things apart? And if it tears things apart, the bad outweighs the good. Number six, 
What's with all the whining? Is it just me or are Americans, and maybe it's global for all I know, but are Americans becoming the whiniest bunch of people on the planet? You know, it's like, <laughs> I, don't, I don't read a whole lot, but, you know, I read articles and I read posts and I read comments, and it just seems to me that people are whining all the time. Solomon wrote about that, and ladies, I need to give you a little preface here because evidently Solomon is having trouble with one of his wives. He deserves to have trouble. He does. He's married to a thousand women. So consequently, <laughs> if one of them gives him trouble, he, he, he deserves everything he's getting. So I just want to give you that as context. The second thing I want to tell you, he's going to talk about his wife being whiny. And ladies, as you will know, the worst thing in the world is a whiny man. And we seem to have quite a bit more of those than we used to have in the past. But I just want to read what he says. You know, he's, he's riding one day, and I guess this particular wife is getting on his nerves. He lives in the biggest house in the world. And here's what he says. It is better to live alone in the corner of an attic than with a quarrelsome wife in a lovely home. And then 10 verses later, I guess it keeps on because he discovers that he would really rather be out of the house. And he said, it's better to live alone in the desert than with a quarrelsome complaining wife. And as I said, every wife here would say, it ain't no fun living with a whiny man. People are getting so whiny today. Now, real quickly, I'm not talking about having a legitimate problem and sharing it and asking for prayer. That's great. I'm not talking about having a serious concern that you share. That's not a problem. I'm talking about people just whining about stuff that doesn't matter at all. I live in a world of church leaders, pastors. And, and, and I was, I don't know, I hope he doesn't watch this podcast, but a guy who's a great leader, I mean, he's posting and he says he drove through the drive-thru to get a cheeseburger and they left the cheese off of it. And I'm like thinking, you really want to enter that forever in the cyberspace? I drove through the drive-thru, and they left the cheese off my cheeseburger. I mean, I always think, what if you were to die right after that? What were Grandpa's last words? I drove through the drive-thru. They left the cheese off my cheeseburger, and then he went to be with God. <laughs> Where's all this coming from? I really hope that in our teaching in this series that we get beyond the surface. I really believe that the whininess that is endemic in our culture today is a cultural phenomenon, and it is having a negative impact, and especially since everyone has an electronic device. Here's where I believe it's coming from. Just follow me for a little bit. In our culture today, as it grows more and more volatile, we have lost the givens. We have lost the things that previous generations counted on. For instance, it used to be when a man married a woman and they said their vows before God, they planned to stay together for a lifetime. It used to be when someone said he loved you or she loved you, they meant it. It used to be that if you were loyal to a company, you went to work for a company and worked for them 30 or 40 years, that company would be loyal to you and you could retire with a pension or with benefits. It used to be that when someone told you something, 
Well, their word was as good as, a, good as a handshake. For most of us, that world is so far gone, we can't even imagine it. I'm just saying, you've got billions of people walking around out there having lost all of the predictables, having lost all of the givens. Anger typically is a response to expecting justice and not receiving it. And so consequently, I'm convinced because those givens have been lost, you have billions of people walking around with pent-up anger. And that's why when there's a comment thread about a draft choice, it doesn't really matter that much. You know, in the NFL, all this rage comes out. Or just a comment thread about a recipe, rage comes out against anyone who would eat that kind of food. We all know they're not really that concerned about the football player or the recipe It's just anger looking for a target. The problem that we have today is that we have 30, 40, and 50-year-old toddlers who can't tell you where it hurts. And I think what's exacerbated this situation is because we all have electronic devices, there is the sense that personal opinion has never been more valuable than it is today. It's just the inverse of that. Personal opinion is never counted for less than it is counted today. I'll give you an example. When have you had a legitimate complaint recently against a company for a defective product? And you complain about the product, legitimately so, and then you get this parsed answer that you know is a stock answer that they've just pressed a button and now you've got that response. It is an apology without accountability. It is sympathy without legitimate concern. And here's the thing. Today, as I say, there's a whole lot of expressing of public opinion or private opinion, but it's just blah, 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 talking to blah, blah, blah. And I don't want to make this a sermon, but I really fear we're going to be like the old parable of the boy who cried wolf. You remember the old story as a shepherd boy who wanted to get attention, and so he yelled wolf, and the townspeople came out to protect him, but they got there, and there was no wolf. He did it again a few more times, and after a while, he cried wolf when an actual wolf was there, and they didn't come to help him, and he was eaten. That's where that expression comes from. I think that is where we are in America today. There's so much blah, 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 complaining that when there are big issues, things that need to be talked about, concerns that are legitimate, and need to be culturally examined. It'll just be blah, 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 talking to blah, blah, blah. What if, and again, I'm not talking about sharing hurts and pains and concerns and prayer requests. That's not what I'm talking about here. I think you know that. But what about just complain, instead of complaining about stuff that doesn't matter, what if God's people were to fill cyberspace with praise, with gratitude, with thanksgiving, with good news? You say, Mark, nobody would read it. Okay, maybe not. I know how life works, but who knows? Maybe we might just change the emotional thermostat in America. Am I out of time? How did I get out of time? Okay. (laughs) Let me give you the end of the message real fast, okay? I'll try to slow it down so that at the 11.30 service, you want to get back online, you can check it out. Maybe I'll I'll end slower. Um, Here's number seven. Number seven, use the God formula to measure your talk. I think about this verse every day. The Bible says in Ephesians 4.29, say only what helps every word a gift. 
So there you go, right there. That, 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 is, the, that is the formula. Only, that's, ooh, that's the, that's the tough one there. Only what helps. And just in case we don't know what that means, God is saying, make sure every word sounds like you just gave somebody a gift. Then number eight, I don't do so well with this one, but it's so big. I need to talk to God before I talk. The Bible says, set a guard over my mouth, O Lord. Keep watch over the door of my lips. The only gated community you need is right here. And God, put a guard over my lips. Great prayer to pray every morning. Okay, this and I'm through. I made you a promise. I read you scripture that revealed the prophetic aspect of our times. Paul writing to Timothy, said, he said, this is what it's going to be like right before Jesus comes back. I promised you I would get to the end of this and show you what he had to say about how we function. You ready? Here we go. 2 Timothy 3, you must, my favorite two words out of the sermon. I've been telling Mary Alice all week. These are my favorite two words. Go on. You must go on. I mean, how many of us want to look at what's going on in our culture and just throw up our hands? How many of us have ever thought, you know, in in your fantasy, if I could just move away to a desert island and find some way to exist, I would like to do that. I'm guessing most of us have thought about that at least as a fantasy because we would so much like to throw up our hands and quit. And yet Paul writes Timothy about how stuff is going to be. And he says, Timothy, you need to go on. Are you a husband? Keep being a good husband. Are you a wife? Keep being a good wife. Do you have a job? Keep going to work. Do you have kids? Keep parenting. Do you have grandkids? Keep influencing. Do you have friends? Keep loving. I mean, this is what's beautiful. That's where it begins. But we're going to have it unpacked for us even better as we go on. You must go on steadily in all those things that you have learned, which you know are true. Remember from what sort of people your knowledge has come from, and how from early childhood your mind has been familiar with the Holy Scriptures, which can open the mind to salvation, which comes through believing in Jesus Christ. And we're out of time, but let me just tell you real quickly what Paul was saying to Timothy. Timothy, just keep going. And remember who you are. See, this is what will keep us from getting caught up in the craziness of our times. Are people talking this way to each other? Sure. Are they posting stuff that's insane? Yeah. Is politics... A war zone? Yes. Paul said to Timothy, you need to go on. And he told him two things. He said, number one, remember who you are. Don't let yourself be caught up in it. Remember who you are. You are a person who believes the Bible. And and you know what you've been taught. You've been taught better than this. And in in Timothy's case, we know who Paul's talking about. I don't think Timothy's dad was a believer, but his grandma was and his mama was. And he's saying to Timothy, you know what your grandma taught you? And you know what your mama taught you? And for some of us, you know what your aunts taught you and your uncles taught you. And you know what, what wise people taught you. Timothy, remember who you are and you remember what you've been taught. And the reason why that's important, it's God's word. And if you will focus on God's word, the important thing is that you'll be saved and you're going to be sure that you're going to heaven and you're going to be able to make it through these times. I hope this is a blessing. God bless. We'll see you next weekend.